sometimes I feel creatively paused. The writer Ann Patchett has said that sometimes she's writing and sometimes she's living. And sometimes I think I just have to live a little bit more and that my thoughts have to germinate a little bit more. So I, I never feel like I have writer's block. I just feel like that it isn't done yet, that whatever I need to say still is kind of doing something deep in the soil and I'm not, I'm not quite ready. And so when that happens, you know, I just live. With thanks to Bailey's, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Vic Hope and I'm your host for season five of the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, the podcast that asks women with lives as inspiring as any fiction to share the five books by women that have shaped them. We have a phenomenal lineup of guests for 2022, and I guarantee you'll be taking away plenty of reading recommendations. My wonderful guest today is New York Times bestselling author and Women's Prize for Fiction winner, Madeline Miller. Her debut novel, The Song of Achilles, came out in 2011 after a whopping 10 years of blood, sweat and tears, which all became worth it with its phenomenal success. Her next novel, Circe, came out in 2018 and is currently being adapted into a miniseries. Her latest book, Galatea, is a short story which became an instant Sunday Times bestseller on its publication earlier this year. It is so great to have you here all the way from Philadelphia in the States. Madeline, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Well, I know that writing obviously plays a big part in your life, but do you find time to read as well? Oh, yes. I love to read. I just, you know, a day where I don't read basically does not happen. And reading is always my happy place. And, you know, I read, I reread, I love to reread. So I'm always looking for recommendations. <laughs> what sort of books do you gravitate towards? Really anything. I, I I go up and down. I now know a lot of people who are writers, so I like to read their books when they come out. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like to read a lot of contemporary stuff, but I also like to read, you know, ancient things. And the movie Persuasion just came out. Uh, and so I had never read Persuasion. And I thought, well, now it's time to read Persuasion. So I just read that, which I really enjoyed. I can't believe I haven't read it before. So, you know, kind of all over the place. Um, really, whatever anyone tells me is good, I'm willing to read it. <laughs> well, I tell you what, if you listen to this um, podcast, there's loads of recommendations <laughs> in the oh, other episodes. <laughs> I was listening to some and I was writing it all down and I'm going to get them. So, yes. Honestly, it's it's so great. I, I feel very, very lucky to be able to host this because I get recommendations every single week from my brilliant guests. <laughs> so thanks for that. I appreciate it. And I'm sure our <laughs> listeners do too. Actually, something that's quite interesting, I know that you know, academically, graduated from Brown University, bachelor's, master's in classics, respectively, after that taught Latin, Greek and Shakespeare to high school students and then studied at University of Chicago's Committee on Social Thought. So you've got so many academic um, accolades which have presumably involved a lot of reading. Did it ever lose its shine for you, the leisurely act of reading, not just you know, the <laughs> art of it, or, or of the novel? Did, did you ever fall in and out of love with it? Never. I I always have loved reading. And, you know, sometimes I pick up a book and it just doesn't grab me. 
and I put it down again and that's okay. That happens all the time. And sometimes it's just that I am not ready for that book and that later on I'll pick it up and I'll say, what was wrong with me? You know, this book is amazing. So sometimes it's just about timing. You know, you never know what kind of mood you're in. But I, I think that for me, reading is just so therapeutic. <laughs> um, and there's always something out there that I want to read. And I actually love reading academic stuff. I mean, this makes me sound super nerdy, but I, I really enjoy listening to academics argue with, e- with each other about yes. things. So I enjoy reading that. <laughs> it's so interesting what you say about timing as well. So many experiences in our lives can be so perfectly articulated in the pages of a novel. And yet, we might not know that the first time we read it because it just hasn't happened yet. It just doesn't resonate yet. I was just rereading actually a book. It was like a you know YA fantasy novel that I loved when I was twelve, and that's you know comfort reading for me. Or I reread Watership Down. Like I love to read, but also new books can be an escape. I mean, I'm absolutely adoring um, the Secret Lives of Church Ladies, which I. I'm just in love with. So, you know, there's so many, there's so much noise. And I feel like that, you know, the phone and the internet, and there's all this noise, but reading is just such a pure, a pure thing for me. And I'm, I'm always happy to do it. And, and to dig in. I it is a little challenging. Now I have two kids. And the that feeling of being you know, really like deep in a paragraph that you're loving and being ripped out. And then, you know, that's hard. So I've had to work out, I've had to change a little bit my reading style because I used to literally just walk around the house holding up a book and like doing chores and reading with one hand in front of my face. You know, I would, I, I would read when I walked, I hit a lot of poles. <laughs> like I would, <laughs> you know, I was constantly reading. So I've had to cut down a little bit because I also want to spend time with my children. And, you know, I don't really like kind of the getting yanked in and out of the book. But one of the big like pleasures is every now and then I'll let myself just like I used to in the old days before I had kids, I'll let myself read till like 3 a.m. And I'm exhausted the next day, but there's something so good about like it's midnight and I really want to know what happens and Mm -hmm. I'm just going to keep reading. What a feeling, honestly. (laughs) One of the best feelings in the world. Well, let's (laughs) dig into the books that you love right now. Your first bookshelfy book is The Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan. First published in 1989, The novel follows the stories of eight women and is rich with both Chinese and American history, life and traditions. It's centred around Jingmei, American-born daughter to Suyan, the founding member of the Joy Luck Club. Upon her mother's death, Jingmei is asked to replace her at the club's meetings and here she is tasked with fulfilling Suyan's greatest wish to reunite with her twin daughters. But there's one problem. Jingmei doesn't feel she knows her mother well enough to tell her sisters about the mother they never knew. What did you love about this book, Madeline? Oh, I loved the psychological realism of it, that the relationships between mothers and daughters, because there are four, four mothers and four daughters, were so beautifully drawn, so just... 
absolutely razor sharp, so, you know, filled with sympathy. You would read the mother's story and you'd read the daughter's story. And, you know, you can, it, it made total sense how these, these people could end up in, you know, the relationship they ended up in and seeing the impacts. I mean, it's, there's so much intergenerational trauma in the book, things that, you know, the mother's experienced. And then you see how the daughters are now kind of continuing to deal with that and and how that's kind of reverberating through the generation. So, but just the, the warmth that she writes with the love for the, for the mothers, for the daughters, some of them are quite difficult people. You know, she's not afraid to show us the complexity of their difficulty, their trauma, but also, you know, this warmth and this real understanding and, and empathy for their life. And it was something I had really never seen so masterfully done before when I first read it. And I just thought, this is the best. And then whenever that happened to me, I would immediately read everything the author had ever written. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, it was really, it was the mothers and daughters and the, the psychology of it. It was so, it was just so exciting as a reader. Like it's just thrilling to read something that rings so true and is written so beautifully. You said that you loved the psychological realism, but you also said that the psychological realism set the bar for you when we spoke to you about this but what do you mean by it set the bar well i think what i mean is that you know reading it as as a teenager i thought you know this is writing <laughs> um and you know whenever i write i want to write with this level of psychological realism i want my characters to feel like they are living breathing people i want to be able to imagine them i want to be able to see them you know walking through the grocery store and I want to be able to understand exactly how their relationship with their with their daughters works and just it was all so I felt like it was almost like reading like therapist case notes I knew it so you know you you understand the characters so deeply and I love that when I read a novel and I really you know you just see how people have been formed by their background and how they've passed that on. And so I always wanted that level, that depth in all my characters. Even if you don't sort of get it on the page, I wanted to know that level of depth. And I wanted to make sure that I was writing with that level of psychological acuity, of observation, where people felt like hopefully they really knew the characters, you know, they were they were so rich and complex and messy, just as we all are. There's great psychological takeaway from Greek mythology. Like I know, like I know it's mythology and, and that might sound like a completely different genre from psychological realism. And yet, I think I've heard you say that one of the things about Greek mythology that's so interesting is just how horrible the gods are. It's a, an exploration, a comment on, on power and privilege. And Do you find your interest in, in mythologies in any way connected to this love of psychological realism? Do they kind of go hand in hand? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I always, you know, even when I'm writing about gods, I want to make sure that that there is psychology to them. It's just the gods are a little bit twisted. I mean, mm. they're basically sociopathic narcissists. Yes, it's so, that, it's that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I want to, you know, represent that um, in, in the way I create them. And some of them are slightly better than others. And some of them, you know, there are a few exceptions. It's, I mean, I just love psychology in general. And I, I, I feel like that this book was, you know, The Joy Luck Club was the first time that I really 
found that in a book. It was the first book I read where, where you know, I, I was really like, wow, these characters are here. I feel like I know them. And so, yeah, and it, it's it's really fun to work with mythology that way because oftentimes, you know, psychology is implied in mythology. I mean, we can sort of guess at people's motives, but really what you get in mythology is you get actions. And so it's really enjoyable for me as a writer to try to imagine, okay, here are the things that the person does. Who is the type of person that would do that? How can we connect these disparate stories to make a psychological arc that, you know, really makes sense? How do we bring in the sociopathic narcissist mm-hmm. to, you know, do their damage as they as they come in, you know, the, the ultimate privileged And how do we see humans reacting to that? So all of that sort of psychology, absolutely. I mean, that's what I love about writing about mythology is to sort of bring in that psychological element. The two things I love, psychology and mythology. (laughs) I mean, two of my favorite ologies. (laughs) It's just so interesting that these gods are really not exemplars. You know, like this isn't what I think when I initially think of the word God, but it's such a vast concept and so fascinating. Yes, yes. I mean, that's one of the one of the really interesting things is that, you know, when you're looking for morality in in ancient Greece, you're not really looking to the gods. I mean, you know, you're looking more to philosophy. Mm. And it was interesting to see the way sort of certain philosophical schools interacted with the idea of the gods because they didn't really believe in the gods, you know, as from the mythology perspective, you know, they were already like, yeah, we can't follow them. (laughs) You know, we're not doing it that way. So it's interesting that in a sense, gods are, you know, morally humans are usually much better than gods in the myths. And that's very interesting to me that, you know, these beings that have all the power are actually incredibly inhumane. And oftentimes when characters in mythology are said to be acting, you know, they're worse, they're acting like a god. And so that definitely resonates, I think, with some of where we are right now, you know, with people who have so much enormous power and privilege. And there have actually been, back to psychology, psychological studies that have said that one thing that naturally happens when you have a ton of power and no consequences and no rules is that your empathy starts dropping. It's just like a natural human phenomenon. And the good news is, is that you can fight that. You can fight it by remembering times when you were powerless. And that that will sort of bring you back in line with remembering that you also belong to the rest of humanity. Because I think what happens is that people start to think like, well, I'm up here because I deserve it. And if those people aren't, it's because they don't deserve it. And therefore, it's fine if I step on them. I feel like that that's sort of like the psychological thing that happens. And so I I just find that very interesting to explore. And so that's something that I really like to kind of dig into is, is how people react to power who is able to hold on to their humanity with power and who isn't and why. I think there are a lot of people with a lot of power who could do with reading Circe and remembering that, <laughs> remembering a little bit of empathy. Let's move on to your second bookshelfy book, which is actually a screenplay rather than a book this time. It's Sense and Sensibility, <laughs> the screenplay, by Emma Thompson. 
Emma Thompson's, <laughs> we've not had one. We've actually not had a, a screenplay yet. So thank you for being the first. <laughs> Emma Thompson's adaptation of Jane Austen's beloved novel won her an Oscar for Best Screenplay in 1995. Emma also starred in the film as Eleanor Dashwood, uh, while Kate Winslet played Eleanor's younger sister, Marianne. The story follows the two sisters, members of a wealthy English family, which is suddenly made destitute. They're forced to seek financial security through marriage, with Hugh Grant and Alan Rickman playing their respective suitors. As I said, first time we've had a screenplay on the podcast. (laughs) What was it about Emma Thompson's adaptation that elevated this classic story for you? Oh, so I I had gone on a big Jane Austen kick and I had read uh, Emma and I'd read Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility, although I didn't make it to Persuasion. And then the, the movie came out and I hadn't really, I hadn't, you know, Sense and Sensibility was fine. I enjoyed it. It hadn't grabbed me the way Pride and Prejudice and, and Emma had. But then the movie came out and I saw it and I was completely blown away. I thought that the adaptation that she did, and also Ang Lee, the director, I mean, I just, I feel like, you know, he is so brilliant and what he did with it was so brilliant also. But the way she wrote the scenes, the humor she brought in, again, the psychology, the acuity, these like incredibly wonderful, you know, encapsulating of whole long scenes in just a few lines back and forth was so exciting to me and so impressive. And I'd I'd always loved sort of theater. And I think for me, it was really formative to see like a brilliant adaptation and to see, you know, how you could take source material and, you know, work with the scenes and and really boil them down and sort of gesture at characters and and translate characters from one medium to another. I mean, it's just, I felt like it was a master class in adaptation. And I've watched that movie many, many times. In fact, I just showed it to my daughter, which was really fun because she loved it. It's just filled with so much nuance. It's so incredibly smart, the way she translated it. And of course, Ang Lee's work as well as the director um, and all the, I mean, the acting is brilliant. I mean, the whole thing is amazing, but I was really impressed with the script, with the way she was able to take this large source text and move it over in such a way that like captured the essence of all these characters, but in such a streamlined way. Well, of course, your own novel, Cezé, is being adapted into a miniseries. How did it feel when you, you heard that? And what is the process of, of adapting it for for the small screen? I mean, I was thrilled. Uh, I am not involved in the writing part, but it's been really exciting to get to see, you know, it go through that. I mean, I was starting with mythology. Um, I was starting with an epic poem as my as my source material. And then I made it a novel. And now here we are going to the next step, a miniseries. And so it's just really interesting to watch, you know, the writer's minds at work as they sort of take the book and, you know, move it into this new medium. So I just, I loved studying as an academic adaptation. I was very interested in the way, you know, myths take different forms. Like one of my favorite adaptations is Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida. I think it's wonderful how it's that 
play is so angry and bitter and nasty and funny <laughs> and, you know, all of that. And so I, I love, I just love watching that process. And a good adaptation is so satisfying because it gestures, I mean, it gives you the original material, but it also surprises you. You know, it's the satisfaction of the material you already know and love but in this surprising, new, thrilling way. And so I, I just love a great adaptation. For me, that's one of my great pleasures. So I'm just excited to get to, to, get to watch the process. <laughs> Are there, I mean, you can say this is a safe space. Are there any fears about them taking your work, your, your baby, and taking it in a new direction? And it's out of your control, um, absolutely. I mean, I think I think all writers fear that. And ultimately, I, I'm not sure, particularly when you're dealing with movies or miniseries, I, I think that the writer ultimately doesn't have that much power. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to watch and I, and I'm, I'm, you know, part of it, but um, absolutely, you know, I think I do have, have some fears, you know, just kind of generally about that. And, you know, I try to remind myself that that's just what adaptation is, that sometimes it looks quite different from the original. And I know that better than anyone. <laughs> um, but I, I think there's always that, you know, this is, yeah, exactly as you say, you know, this is my baby, What what's going to happen to it? And there were definitely some hard, when people were talking to me about wanting to adapt it, I was listening very carefully to the way they talked about the work and sort of their ideas about the work and how they interpreted it, because I wanted to make sure that they were interpreting it in line with sort of what I felt was the heart and the heart of the story. And so I think for me, what I want is I want the heart of the story to be intact. And as long as it is, I'm okay with other changes, but I feel like the heart should be there. I get that. And I'm sure, though, she probably wasn't, well, she definitely wasn't consulted. I'm sure Jane Austen would have been very happy <laughs> with the way Emma Thompson retained the heart of sense and sensibility in her <laughs> adaptation. Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Looking for a treat to pair with your favourite book? Bailey's is the perfect accompaniment to enjoy either over ice or over coffee. There are no better friendships than those formed around brilliant books. And since you're listening, we're guessing you love books as much as we do. The Women's Prize has created an exclusive community that gives you a bookish backstage pass, offering surprises and freebies, plus unmissable reading recommendations and book chat from our founder friends, including me, Vic Hope. Search for Women's Prize Friend to become a friend today. We cannot wait to meet you. Let's move on to your third book now, Madeline, which is Kitchen by Banana Yoshimoto. Banana Yoshimoto's novels have made her a sensation in Japan and all over the world, in fact. And Kitchen is a book about mothers, love, tragedy and the power of the kitchen and home in the lives of a pair of free-spirited young women in contemporary Japan. Tell us a bit about this book. Why do you love it? 
I mean, it, so I, I remember picking it up. I was in a, a Barnes and Noble here. Um, I mean, I spent tons of time in bookstores. Mostly I was in independent bookstores, but also Barnes and Noble. And, and it was on a display and I picked it up and it had such an appealing cover. And I, I'd never heard of the writer at the time. This was again in, when I was a teenager. I mean, I started reading it and I just, it was like that feel, that wonderful feeling when you think, oh my gosh, I'm going to love this book. And the descriptions of this sort of free spirit, as you say, but also kind of a lost soul, this person searching for family, searching for connection and finding it partially through cooking. And the descriptions of food in it are amazing. Yes. I mean, with a book named <laughs> Kitchen, you would expect there to be some good food. Scenes, you want to be like, salivating. <laughs> oh, and you will be if you read it. It's so, it just, it made me so hungry reading it. I was like, it sounds so good. But the way she's able to really infuse the food, not only make it sound delicious, but really describe the love with which it's made and, and how important that love is to just how delicious it is. And and ultimately, it's really a story about sort of found family that, you know, she finds her way into this other family. And the mother figure in the story is, is actually trans. And that was, you know, when I was reading this in 1994, there weren't a lot of books that were telling the stories of, of trans people. And I loved that. I loved that too. I, I was very engaged in that part of the story and, and, and what a wonderful and complicated character that the the mother is and you know most of all this this idea of found family of how you know even if we don't have family that there are families out there in the world where we can really be ourselves and i, I think that part of the story really spoke to me and and some of my novels I feel like have sort of found families in them. I'm very drawn to that story about people who sort of move away from their families of origin, but find families out in the world. And so I loved that part of the story too. It's very poignant. Do you read to your kids, to your family? Is that love of this theme of found family, is that something that might pass on to your your family? I hope so. I love to read to my kids. Um, and I, and I hope that they will, you know, I, I hope that they do love their family of origin, (laughs) 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 but I also hope that they go out and find families out in the world, that they find people who feel like family. Um, I would absolutely want that for them because there can never be too many people who love you and who cherish you and who let you be who you are. So I, I definitely hope they get that. And, and I love to read them, I mean, I just love to read to them. I read to them all the time, (laughs) every night, of course, but also during the day. And when they were babies, I was just constantly, constantly reading. So the the love of books, I wish I were as good a cook as the people (laughs) in kitchen. I feel like I need to work on on my food side. I need to work on my, you know, filling filling food with love. But I definitely fill reading with love. And I I would certainly hope that they that everyone can can have some people that they say, well, this is my family of origin, but these are my family out in the world. Yeah. And what better way to show love than pressing books into the hands of those that you do love? <laughs> I think it's one of the most special things that, that we can do. And, you know, as a teacher as well, you, you've done that. You've pressed works of, of fiction, of literature, of mythology into the hands of so many young people. Is there any particularly good writing advice that you would like to pass on to younger writers? Sure. Um, I mean, I think the main thing is to just keep writing and keep reading 
And to be patient with yourself. You know, one of the hardest things I think about writing, particularly when when you're starting out, is that it takes a lot of drafts for something to be good. And you have to simultaneously believe 100% in what you're working on and think it's great. And also at the same time, know that you are about 100 drafts from it actually being great, mm-hmm. if it, or maybe 200. And holding those two ideas in your mind at the same time, at least for me, when I was a, an early writer, when I was a young writer, that was really hard for me. I would sort of think it was great. And then I would have this crash of despair and I'd be like, no, it's not. It's terrible. And then I would work, you know, and I feel like after you've gone through that process a bunch of times, you understand that like, hey, this needs work, but it'll get there. And and I'll and I know how to get it there. And, you know, it can both be true that something can be very promising and be totally not done yet. And so trying to hold those two opposing ideas and not have these crashes of despair uh, that I used to have and just you know, have faith and keep sitting down with it, keep working to improve it, keep reading great writers, and, you know, you'll get there. Well, talking of these crashes of despair, you know, your debut novel, The Song of Achilles, it it took you 10 years to write. It's magnificent. It's a work of art. But 10 years is a long time. It's a huge part of your life. Were there crashes of despair during that process? How did you get through them? (laughs) constantly constantly you know it was like this roller coaster of I'd be really happy and then and then I'd put the book away and come back and read it I think oh no terrible (laughs) you know delete delete so I think for me it, it was during that time I mean the reason it took 10 years is that I was learning how to write a novel and I was learning how to adapt and I was learning what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it. And I was learning how to write dialogue. I mean, I really, you know, I didn't go through any writing programs at all. Um, so I had, you know, all the books I had read, which was quite a lot of books, but could I do that? I didn't know. So it was just me practicing and writing and writing and writing and draft after draft after draft. And, you know, one of my biggest crashes of despair was about halfway through five years in, I had a completed draft and I thought, you know, okay, I'm going to get an agent. I did. And I'm going to start thinking about moving to publication, you know, to, to try to find a publisher. I read it one more time and I thought, oh no, this is terrible. And I don't know how to fix it, but it's not right. The voice that I have for, for Patroclus is not right. And sitting with that of you know, that feeling of this is not right, but I don't know how to fix it was really hard. And for a while, I just gave up on it. And I thought, well, maybe I'll write some personal essays. I'll write some memoir. You know, I couldn't even write fiction anymore because I was so, but I I actually went to a summer writing program, which I would highly recommend also for, for young writers that, you know, going and being around other writers, other people who are struggling with the same things you're struggling with, and also writers who have come through it. There would be lectures every night from published authors that I really respected. And that was helpful. Just being around all this talk about the craft of writing was really helpful. And I was able to sort of go back to the novel and suddenly like the first line of the novel as it now stands came to me in a bolt of lightning as I was walking across the campus. And I ran back and typed up the first chapter pretty much as it stands now. 
And then it still took me five years to write the rest of it. But <laughs> I had the, you know, I had the voice I had. So you never know when those breakthroughs are going to come. And just trying to be patient with yourself and not give up on it. And, you know, it's it's hard. It's it's a hard thing to do to to create a story that is so, you know, that, that you hope will be able to capture a world and capture characters and and it, it should be hard work. It should be. Well, those breakthrough moments of inspiration is the, the stuff of dreams. But it's very heartening <laughs> to hear that even within a 10-year period, you know, that, that they'll happen and then you'll work hard again and then it'll happen. Um, let's yes, move on exactly. to your fourth book now, which is Heartburn by Nora Ephron. The late Efron writes semi-autobiographically about her own divorce in her first and only novel. Packed with snappy, hilarious, endlessly quotable one-liners, Harbin <laughs> is a roller coaster of love, betrayal, loss, and most satisfyingly, revenge. What is it? <laughs> what is it about Nora Efron's writing that speaks to you, Madeline? Oh, I mean. Everything you just said. Um, I first of all, I love the fact that there is revenge in it. And yes, because <laughs> the revenge is so deserved, and it's not so like sweet. you know. I, I was really blown away by how incredibly sad the book is, and how much it's about pain and bitterness and betrayal and how funny and seeing I mean she just is able to perfectly like like the zingers and like the knife to the heart there is you sometimes it's the same sentence that that has both in there like that oh this is so painful for the character and you're with the character but also she's making you laugh and then you're crying and then you're laughing and it's just the poignancy and the sharpness and the intelligence and the voice it was just seeing how funny a really sad, painful story could be was I, I was I was amazed. I was blown away. And I thought there's I haven't read anything like this before. This is just so exciting to see this. And I've reread it many times since then. And it's always it always makes me laugh and it also makes me cry. And I, I feel like she really brings out that pain of feeling completely betrayed and, you know, lost in that betrayal. Her fiction and non-fiction, actually, always hits this balance of soft and hard, of realism and wit. Is this something that, that you ever try to do in, in your writing, something you strive towards? Yes. I mean, I am not a funny writer. I don't have one one hundredth of <laughs> Nora Ephron's ability to to be funny. Um in writing and and I I think it depends on on the narrators but I really enjoy bringing in moments of of humor because I I love reading funny books and watching funny plays but I always like it to be character based I feel like I always want the humor to be sort of based in in character so I'm not I'm not a zinger I don't have the Nora Ephron zinger thing although I love to read read her work but it reminds me of how important it is to have all these different notes that, you know, you want the, you want there to be humor and you want the pain. You can't just have unrelenting misery. <laughs> you know, no one wants to read that. And, and that doesn't really reflect even the human experience that even in incredibly hard times, there's always sort of the wryness, the absurdity, the fun. So 
I, I love the that richness of the tapestry that she weaves in, and I I try to bring that into my own work, even though I I am not a zinger. I'm not the queen of zingers like Nora Ephron. <laughs> we said just before this is um, semi-autobiographical. This, this book is, is loosely based on Nora's own life. Do you ever find that autobiographical elements slip into your fiction at all? I mean, it, it's experience, isn't it? We, we write about things that we hopefully understand. Absolutely. And in some ways, it's always really interesting when a close friend reads reads my book and they'll say, hmm, that thing. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even I actually didn't even realize that, <laughs> you know, that, you know, we write from I write from all the things that have ever happened to me and that I've ever seen and that they're always, you know, that's who I am. And so all those things are are there. And I, I think as writers, it's really important to be really curious about the world, be, you know, observing the world and wanting to learn about new things, but also, you know, your own experiences and the things that happen to you are there. So, you know, I don't, none of my characters are based on anyone I know. That's, I know a lot of writers do that and that's great. And I often love to read those books, but I, I, I don't know why that's just not how I conceive of my characters. But there I, I know that there are things in there that, you know, resonate with that. I'm for example, I mean, just in Circe, thankfully neither of my children are demigods. So they are not quite <laughs> as challenging as Circe's child. Um, but that experience of, you know, walking with an infant who is screaming their head off and won't go to sleep at 3 a.m. You know, when I was writing those scenes, I was like, I, I had viscerally experienced that pretty mm. recently. <laughs> and, you know, Cersei is not me at all, but these experiences work their way in. And, and I think it's important to do that. For another example, Cersei's magic. Uh, I was, you know, I wrote this whole section about how she discovers her magic. And then I was reading back over it and I was like, wow, this sounds a lot like my writing process. Um, <laughs> you know, the like trial and error and throwing stuff out. And it's, it's funny that, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> um, so, you know, sometimes it kind of, I don't realize it till later <laughs> that it's sure. in there. And I'm like, oh. You're not Cersei or Patroclus, but they are both written in the first person, they're first person narrators. How do you get inside their heads? How do you convey how they'd speak, how they'd see the world? How do you write from their perspective? So this is something I'm really grateful for my background in theater. So I, I was a theater director for, for many years and working with actors on how to get into character and working with plays and sort of how you evoke characters through language, through tone, through all of that was really helpful in terms of how I think of, of my characters. And, and in a way, I sort of conceive of both my novels as monologues in a way like that the character is telling their life story. And, you know, sometimes I even imagine them up there on a stage narrating it. And my friends joke that I'm a, a method writer uh, because I sort of put on the character and I, I really try to see through their eyes and feel what they're feeling. And, you know, oftentimes I write in like a darkened room with a hood pulled over <laughs> to kind of block out stimuli because I'm trying to be in it. You know, I want to be in the scene. Yeah. So I can't write in cafes at all because oh. I have to like go go into the scene. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's ama- you're a method writer. I love that. <laughs> love that. Well, Madeline, it's time to talk about your fifth and final book this week, which is The House of the Spirits by Isabel Allende. Uh, Spanning four generations, this family saga is populated by memorable, um, often eccentric cast of characters. Together, men and women, spirits, the forces of nature and of history converge in an unforgettable, wholly absorbing and brilliantly realised novel that is as richly entertaining as it is a masterpiece of modern literature. Why did you pick this book? (laughs) Um, so this this book was also just an absolute revelation to me when I was in high school and I there there was so much about it that just blew me away I mean the first thing was the the scope of it the generations and the sort of like family drama family relationships the love the sort of epic nature of people's experiences was was really gripping. I felt immersed in these families and, and in these people's lives. But on top of it, it's really so much a story about injustice and political injustice and cruelty and, and how we respond in the face of cruelty. And it was really amazing to see just to think about that and to think about how powerfully she shows scenes of resistance to that kind of cruelty and to political oppression. And uh, that was really something that I hadn't encountered the way she, she creates it. So, so gripping. And, you know, it's a very political novel in a way. I mean, it's about families, but it's a very political novel. And and I was really amazed at how she brought that in seamlessly. Like the whole thing just works as a whole and how explicit she is in addressing that political oppression. And then I, I think the third thing that just grabbed me about it was, of course, the the aspects of, of magical realism, how seamlessly the spirits and the fantastical elements were part of the story. And yet this was utterly, you know, realistic, gripping, completely rooted in these people's daily lives. It was the first time, you know, I had read fantasy and I had read things that were very realistic, but this was the first thing I read where, where it was really exciting to read. And one of the things that, you know, when it came time for my novels, I'm always thinking about how do you have a realistic world and also these fantastical elements. And I feel like House of the Spirits is just such a, a masterclass in basically everything. I mean, but that <laughs> in particular. Magical realism. And I guess your work is mythological realism. There, There is that crossover. And there's so much that became this masterclass for you in magical realism. How do you find inspiration? Do you look around you? Do you look to what you've read in the past? Do you ever feel creatively blocked? Sometimes I feel creatively paused. The writer Ann Patchett has said that sometimes she's writing and sometimes she's living. And sometimes I think I just have to live a little bit more and that my thoughts have to germinate a little bit more. So I, I never feel like I have writer's block. I just feel like that it isn't done yet. 
that whatever I need to say still is kind of doing something deep in the soil and I'm not, I'm not quite ready. And so when that happens, you know, I just live, I still try to write, but if I, if I can't, I can't. And instead I, you know, try to read wonderful books and be with friends and family and broaden my world and learn about new things. And then, you know, come back, keep checking on those seeds that are germinating and see how they're doing. And for me, the the impulse, usually what I want to write about is something that I'm mad about, <laughs> to be honest. It, it's something that starts to obsess me and I'm really frustrated about, or I feel like I have something that I really, really must say about it. And, you know, something I want to push back on, a story I want to see in the world that isn't in the world. So with Song of Achilles, I was really angry at the way that I felt you know, that the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus, which in the ancient world was interpreted both as, you know, a romantic relationship or as companionship, both of those were totally accepted in the ancient world. In all the stuff I was reading and in what I was being taught, the whole romantic possibility was completely off the table. I mean, it was definitely, you know, this homophobic reaction where that was being sort of erased from the story. And I was really angry about that because I felt like reading the Iliad that a romantic relationship makes total sense for them. You know, you don't have to go that way. But for me, that was how the story resonated. And so, you know, putting that out in the world, pushing back against what I felt was this, you know, forcible closeting of their relationship. And with Circe, it was the fact that, you know, I felt that I was really frustrated by the way Odysseus talks about her in the Odyssey. And I wanted to push back against that. And I wanted to make a woman's story, you know, an epic and set that at the center of the story. Um, a woman's life gets to be just as epic as a man's life. So it it often comes from this frustration or this anger, or this feeling that, you know, there's there's an injustice <laughs> that I that I want to address. And um, that's really where it comes from. So it's very internal, but it's related to sort of a conversation that I'm seeing in the world. Finding inspiration from frustration <laughs> is a brilliant way to live, as is whenever you're feeling creatively blocked or creatively paused. Just live. Just live. We can do that. Do you have a preference, actually, between teaching, reading, writing and learning? Or do you feel like they all go mm -hmm. hand in hand? Yeah, I think it all goes hand in hand. And I would add theater to that because I, I theater is one of the most engaging things. And it's all similar, you know, in some ways, it's hard to teach when I'm writing and parenting at the same time, because I think they all call for being very emotionally present for other people, being emotionally present for your children, being emotionally present for your characters, being emotionally present for your students. And so it's it's very similar in some ways. And of course, you know, teaching, there's so much storytelling in teaching, attending to, you know, what's going on to in, in your students' lives. So it's all it's all related. I love it all. I can't do it all at the same time. <laughs> um, but I, I love it all. And I, I do really miss teaching. I haven't been I haven't not been teaching recently, but I, I do hope I go back to it and I hope I go back to directing. But right now writing is is what's calling me so that's where I am well that's good for us 
because then we get books. <laughs> we get books to read from you. So thank you. Um, my final question to you, Madeline, is if you had to choose one book as a favourite, mm. which one would it be and why? Oh my gosh, this is so brutal. It, um, every time I ask it, and you know what? I ask it every single podcast. And every time uh, my lovely guest is always like, oh, I can't. About, you knew this was coming. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, because it so depends on my mood. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes I really need kitchen and sometimes I really need house of the spirits and sometimes I need to watch sense and sensibility and it's all, but I, if I have to just pick one, oh my gosh, I think it, I think it would have to be probably the dry look. I truly, I truly love that book. It's such a comfort read for me because it, brings back my teenage years really strongly and it's so beautiful and it's so satisfying and oh but I feel also feel like I should have said heartburn like I can't, I can't help you're gonna talk yourself around in circles it's so hard I know it's so hard and I'm sorry because I'm the one who made you do that but I tell you what the way you speak about all of those works is so evocative and it makes me want to read them right now. And I know that so many people <laughs> listening will feel the same. You've just described these places that we can all escape to, these places that we can all go. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy to chat to you, Madeline, and to hear about your process. And I feel like anyone who's a budding writer as well listening has got some really good advice. So thank you so much for joining me on the Women's Rise of Fiction podcast. I'm Vic Hope, and thank you for listening. Please rate and review this podcast. It is the easiest way to help spread the word about the female talent you've heard about today. The Women's Prize for Fiction podcast is brought to you by Baileys and produced by Bird Lime Media. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, Madeline. I'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>